0: Year 2023, we have been taking time each week to go through a question and answer to seek to strengthen our foundations in a broad array of topics. And last week, Matt gave a book to his son uh, as he recited. Uh, The opportunity was open to anyone, but last week's question, and I don't expect we'll do this every week, but because we have precedent. And I figured maybe that might motivate someone else to be ready to volunteer to recite last week's question and answer. We want to, again, provide a resource of your choice out at our resource center for whoever would like to volunteer first to share. So do we have anybody, any takers? All right, we'll have to do it next week. <laughs> just as a motivation. All right, then let's turn our attention to this week's question and answer. We're on question number four: How? And do we have it? How and why? Did God create us? No? All right, then. I will repeat it. <laughs> and you can say it after me. How and why did God create us? God created us male and female. In his, him, in his own image to know him, to love him and live with, him, love and live with him. And him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live in his glory. Thank you. If you haven't, um, please pick up one of the books. We have resources that you can follow along and keep up at home and study these together as a family. Also, if you haven't had an opportunity to check out the New City Catechism app, it's a great resource. It not only contains the questions and answers for both the adult and kid versions, um, it also contains verses that go along with what each question and answer are about, as well as commentary to give you more depth and understanding so we can study not just, we're not just trying to memorize some facts or details, but to take in what these things are speaking about as we speak today about the importance of God creating male and female in his image, that we might live and love him according to his glory. That's, that's a key issue in today's world and so commentary will share more about what that means for us to be male and female made in God's image and to live for his glory. Um, there's a great resource and there's also songs for the kids to help learn their shorter version all included in that app. Well as we've been doing Matt is going through the book of Judges and then on occasion I pitch relief, and I've been going through the book of Second Peter, so if you could, it's been a couple of months, but let's turn to Second Peter. We are in chapter 2, and we are going to begin reading halfway through verse 10. And this morning, a little bit different than how we often go through, instead of reading the whole passage at the beginning, I'm going to read a section, and then we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to do that a couple of times. And then bring it all together at the end. So would you read with me, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 2, 2, Peter. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. This first section that we're looking at I'm calling the bold and willful. And that is not a new soap opera, (laughs) but it's an old, off repeated mark of rebellious foolishness. Peter starts with quite a list arrogant attitudes, blasphemous speech, animal like behaviour, irrational creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. Speaking in ing- ignorance, suffering wrong is their wage of wrongdoing, delighting to revel in the daytime, full of adultery, insatiable for sin, hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Well, oh, it could sound to us like MTV's programming lineup. But there is something going on here. There isn't anything in this list that we read and would think, Peter, we can't relate to what you're saying here. Or that we couldn't look around us with a little bit of effort in our workplaces and schools, news feeds, and social media accounts and quickly find examples of each description that he lists. The perversions of the world are numerous and often enticing. The allure of riches and unrestrained sexual pleasures have certainly not diminished in the last 2,000 years. We need to be on constant guard for such temptations and depravities abound. Yet what might surprise us, if we aren't paying attention to where we are in our passage, and that's understandable because it's been a couple of months, is that Peter isn't describing the culture around him, or projecting what ours will one day be. But he's describing the mindset and behavior of individuals claiming to represent God, Christianity, and spiritual life. His focus and condemnation here is reserved for those claiming to be believers, but in reality are perverting the truth of God and his gospel with motivations and promises indistinguishable from the present evil age. It's helpful for us to remember that in parables like the wheat and the tares, Jesus told us that the church would always be a mixture of those who are saved, of believers, true, and those who are not. Sometimes we won't be able to tell the difference But that mixture will remain until he returns and comes in judgment. And Peter here is in the midst of a fairly lengthy teaching about false teachers and false prophets. Against whom he has had to defend his own ministry. He says that they entice unsteady Souls. The, the description that's given is a, a fishing tor- term. It's one of luring in someone to their own perversions. In their greed and deception, they particularly target those who are weak, unsure of their faith, snatching them up like the seed that fell upon the path in Jesus' parable of the soils. Which is why. Peter not only uses graphic descriptions of their behavior, but rather strong pronouncements of judgment and the destruction that will come upon them. They are bold and blasphemous, ignorant, following their own passions in pursuit of sexual sin and financial greed. Insatiable in sin, Peter says. They go after their lusts and passions. They are never satisfied. They are cursed children on their way to sure destruction. Yet by the very nature that these are false teachers, the reality is that some still confuse them for ministers of Christ. How can that be? Well, having a public gift, a smile, the right charisma, that can get you a long way. Add in, if you tell people things that they like to hear that appeal to their sinful natures, you can gain an audience. You can convince people of this way that sounds a lot like the truth, but a little bit better than everybody else thinks. I've heard folks from both ends of the political spectrum describe encounters that they've had with former presidents with whom that they have been diametrically opposed in position. And what they relay after meeting some of these men is how surprised they were with how much they liked them even though they knew they despised their positions. These leaders were winsome and charming. They were warm. They were hard not to like even when the person knew going in that they didn't agree with what they stood for. If that can be the case with someone when they know going in that they disagree, what do you think is possible when someone says seemingly right things and appears to believe much Of what I believe. Add to that. We can be drawn in. By personality. Or attractiveness. Or style. Before even hearing a point. That someone is making. Not to mention that when someone. Is appealing to our lusts. Our self interests Our sinful desires. Will want to follow. We are not always as wise or as sophisticated as we would like to believe. Isaiah 53 tells us that God chose a different way when presenting his son. We read that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. When God came and walked among us to bring us the most amazing news he made no shortcuts for himself. He did not do it on the basis of his appearance or style (laughs) that just drew the crowds to him. No, they came because there was something totally different about him, and yet they didn't all stay. Most rejected and turned away. Of course, false teachers and prophets, when we talk about this idea, they aren't only found in pulpits, songs and podcasts, articles and news outlets, neighbors and co-workers, professors and students, tweets and Facebook rants. Many hear the good news and think they know better news. Now, I want to make a distinction here. As we talk about the idea of false teachers, there is a difference between being a false teacher and teaching something false. We all have limited knowledge and understanding in this life, we make mistakes. Errors will come from our lips. I include myself in that very readily. What Peter is describing here is something different. There is an arrogance involved. He contrasts them with angels who are obedient messengers. These mighty beings are careful not to go beyond their delegated authority to alter the message they are sent to deliver but these teachers, they seek personal gain. They've abandoned the truth in an attempt to make life more pleasurable and the gospel more attractive. It's not a slip of the tongue or a product of not having the right information. Peter says they are bold and willful. They have departed from what they have known to be true. And they entice those who are unsteady. Let's go on to verse 15. Forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebellious for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Our second section gives us another surprising use of a donkey's jaw. Who used it better? Samson last week? If you're a little rusty on Balaam's story, you can read it in the book of Numbers. He was considered a prophet, and he clearly heard from God on multiple occasions. Yet, he was ruled by greed and gain. Balak, the king of Moab, sent representatives to Balaam, asking him to come and curse the Israelites as they were in the wilderness approaching the promised land. He said, these these people, they're going to cause us a lot of problems, so would you come and curse them, to send them away, to destroy them, so my people will thrive, and they will not. God told Balaam, when messengers were sent to him, that the Israelites were his special people, and he was not to go. And he was not to curse them. So Balak sent more representatives and offered him greater riches and status if he would come and curse these Israelites. He again told them that he could not, but his heart was not really in that response. For the next thing we see is Balaam on his donkey headed towards the king. The account tells us that the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a sword drawn and refused to budge. This angered Balaam because he did not see what the donkey saw. And in his anger, he beat the donkey until God gave the donkey speech and rebuked Balaam through the donkey. God allowed Balaam to go to the king then, but only, he said, to say what I tell you to say. So twice, he said, well, let's see what we can do. Let's make some sacrifices and I'll see what God says. Twice, they made sacrifices. And what God said was that these were his chosen special people They were not to be cursed because his blessing was upon them. And so Balaam spoke out blessing over Israel instead of curses. Which really did not sit well with Balak, the king. Who was trying to hire him to destroy this people that threatened him. But that was not the end of what Balaam did. Unable to change God's view of Israel, he sought to change Israel's view of God. We read that Balaam was behind a plan that sent Moab's young women into the camp to entice the Israelites. Seducing them sexually and through their idolatry, they led them away from Yahweh, which brought a plague upon the nation. The heart of Balaam's story was that he knew what God wanted him to do and yet for reasons of personal profit he was willing to do the opposite. This is why Balaam was used by Peter as the prototypical false teacher He was so blinded by his self interest that the donkey he was riding on was revealed to have greater insight and clarity into the things of God than the prophet did. So Peter draws our attention not just to Balaam, but also to the donkey that, at least temporarily, He says, restrained the prophet's madness. Uh, Some think that Peter may have been using this account as a bit of a self-deprecating reference. Because as we saw in chapter 1, part of what Peter has to do in this letter is make a defense of his own apostolic ministry. The fact that it was not based on cleverly devised myths, but on being an eyewitness to the Christ and his glory, to his transfiguration, to his resurrection, to his ascension. Peter was there and saw these things. He had a voice that should have been listened to, but these false teachers didn't think much of Peter by this time in history for his message, particularly his message that Christ has promised to return and he is coming again to judge. So some think this is a bit of him saying, well, you may not respect me as an apostle. Maybe you don't even respect me as a man. Then let me answer you as a donkey. For God has used donkeys before. Before to be more clear-sighted and truth-revealing than so-called prophets. Now, regardless of whether that is the exact motivation for this illustration or not, Peter was highlighting that God is more than capable of using unlikely and seemingly unqualified candidates to get his message across. He makes it a point... To make sure no one misses. That it's a speechless donkey. That spoke. And restrained the prophet's madness. Which. If we're willing to go there. It gives hope to us all. No matter your perception. Of yourself. And your abilities. Or others perceptions of you. God is more than capable of using you to accomplish his purposes because the ability does not come from you but in the God who breathes life into the dead who gives speech to the speechless he is more than able To use whomever he chooses for his glorious purposes. On to verse 17. Peter says these are waterless springs. And mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Section three is they had one job. We have a few photos. We'll go through these quickly. You can find these all over. The internet loves these things. It's a really effective drain, isn't it? Great design. Whole area is flooded, yet it's virtually dry. All right, go on to the next one. Okay, there's a slight problem here. Keep going. I don't know how this even happens. I think they come in a kit that's totally different than this. But. Making their own way. Give cyclists space if you can't read the sign that's in the middle of the bike lane. Great. One more. College. Knowledge of architecture and planning, well thought through, one job to do, and somehow miss and mess up that one job. Did you ever go to McDonald's just to get ice cream with the kids, only to find out the machine is broken? Disappointing, right? Right? What if instead of ice cream you were in need of water? Travelers in the Middle East would have had to be on constant lookout for where they would obtain this life-giving necessity. Imagine coming to the only spring or well visible all day only to discover it dry. There's only one purpose for a spring and that's to provide water more than frustrating it can get dangerous if you aren't able to find a true source quickly sitting at the well while Peter and the other disciples went to procure supplies what did Jesus declare he could provide to the woman he encountered living water. A couple chapters later in John 7, Jesus would declare, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jeremiah, in multiple places, described Yahweh as the fountain of living waters. So, this picture of false teachers as waterless springs is particularly striking. God is not shy about being the source of life giving waters, springs and rivers that nourish and refresh. He is our sustainer. There is no replacement. He calls us to come to Himself and drink and be strengthened in His good news. To be refreshed by His Spirit. To come to the reality that it is not based on our performance that we gain right standing with God. But it is only by what he has accomplished for us, which we have celebrated already this morning. There is no better news in all the universe, in all of creation. What then is the job of the preacher and the teacher? the role of the under-shepherd, as much as God gives him the ability to do, is to take us to still waters where we can drink freely. It is certainly not to come up with alternative sustenance and refreshment. And where the waters seem buried or inaccessible, He seeks to draw, to help draw up living water for his hearers so that we can get to it. And hasn't that been our experience as we've gone through the book of Judges? We can look and see and say, oh boy, where are we going with this? Yet week after week, we are fed life-giving waters of the gospel from a hard-to-get place. David Helm writes, these preachers were promising water, the refreshment of the Holy Spirit with all his good gifts and assurance. What they delivered instead was a deposit from an empty well. Funny stories and gripping illustrations are of no help if they are not accompanied by life-giving water. The need is not creativity or being novel when it comes to the source and substance of the message. We must not obscure what God's word makes plain or look to place our own personal improvements on His eternal truth. We must go to Him. The only source of true refreshment, of soul satisfaction and invigorating relationship with God. Jeremiah 2, the prophet writes, for my people have committed to Evils. Feel the weight of that word. Evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Not only is it evil, it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense to take what is given freely in abundance for us and think, I can do better. Only to come up dry and broken and worse off than before. Dry cisterns, waterless springs, they have one job and have failed at it miserably. They've missed entirely the purpose for their being. Beyond disappointing, it can be deadly to substitute life-giving waters with something that cannot nourish or satisfy. But these teachers are incapable of doing better. Because even though they are promising freedom, they themselves are slaves corruption. They are not able to break free. In bondage to their sin, they can only serve their true master. Because, Helm writes again, without the waters of God's spirit dwelling within, none of us possesses the internal strength to walk away from what corrupts us. We cannot do it on our own. He is the only way. He alone is our life, our salvation. We can't come up with a better way. Promising water, they leave their followers to die of thirst instead. It says, the gloom of utter darkness awaits them. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Or it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness then after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Section four is should have quit While they were ahead. They're only making things worse. Specifically their own judgment day. They can't help themselves. Like irrational animals mentioned earlier. Living on instinct. They are entangled in the net of their own sin. And they are overcome by it. Peter does not shrink from describing them as publicly proclaiming Christ. Yet, it seems clearly unlikely that they ever knew Him as Lord and Savior the way a true believer does. Because they're still ensnared and trapped and unable to break free from their sin. They should have been transformed by the living waters of the true gospel. While they were ahead except that it was their desire to get ahead to pursue their lusts and passions and greed that resulted in them ending up in a much worse place than when they started it's reminiscent of the individual exercised of a demon only to find seven stronger ones return and take up residence have a condition much worse than before Or like when Jesus declared that it would be better for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. These were nearby Gentile cities that God judged in the Old Testament. And he's declaring that it would be better for them on the day of judgment than it will be for Israelite cities that he performed miracles in that did not repent. Luke 10, he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Encounters with the Lord are meant to produce humility and repentance. Those who respond with arrogance and willfulness incur a greater judgment than those who never receive the same opportunity. In, in his discourse on the tongue, James tells us that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. How much more those that know the truth, yet like Balaam, choose to pursue some other gain as greater than seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Peter likens that behavior to vivid imagery from the animal world. Dogs and pigs that keep returning to their disgusting vomit and mire. These animals wouldn't have had a great reputation with his readers to begin with. Pigs were considered unclean animals in Israel. They were taboo. Dogs were far from the domesticated pets we may know today as man's best friend. In that day, they were seen as scavengers and pests, as they still are in many parts of the world today. Add to that foundation dogs who continually return to that which made them sick in the first place. And we have a fitting picture, Peter says, of purposely departing from the truth to make your own way. Going back to vomit is graphic and disgusting. It's meant to be. And anyone who's been within a hundred yards of a pig pen knows that it's not just mud that they're rolling around in. Peter is saying these folks can't help themselves. Slaves to their sin. They keep going back. It's not rational. It's just going off instinct, living like animals that have no better sense. Slaves to their sin. Peter leaves no question what his estimation is of their lives and actions. Dick Lucas writes, the scavenging dog eating its own vomit and the sow wallowing in its own mud are both revolting pictures of brute beasts, creatures of instinct, and they vividly describe the false teachers. After an initial display of repentance and reformation, They show that nothing in their nature has changed at all. Which is the last proof that these people never were Christians. Whatever they vomited up from the inside or washed off from the outside, nothing has fundamentally changed. See you all next week. (laughs) Not quite yet. So what's the big idea with all of this? Well, it would be tempting to say, be like the donkey, not like the dog. Fear the Lord and let Him work through you. But that's not quite it. Instead, it's more that we are dependent on transforming encounters with the living God in order to properly fear and be used by Him. We are dependent on transforming encounters with the living God in order for us to fear him rightly as we should and be used by him. And if that's the case, what are we to do in response? Of four suggested takeaways. The first is probably the least obvious and definitely the most awkward as it could risk appearing self-serving after a message on false teachers. But if Peter, the most prominent of the twelve disciples in the gospel accounts, had to defend his ministry, be aware that those of us of much lesser pedigree face challenges and discouragements in our roles as well. I just want to give one quick example. This is not a current example, but it is has been for us a common example. When folks have left the church over the years, the thing that we tend to hear most is the reason is because I don't get anything out of your preaching or other perceived lacks in us. Now that's not everyone, but it is frequent. And even when it isn't intended to be, it always feels personal. I don't know why Peter would ever need to defend his ministry. And I don't understand how it could be that Paul would state near the end of his, All of Asia has left me. But I do know most pastors have experienced enough of their own sin and doubt as well as the sin of others to know that the temptation, the discouragement in ministry is rarely more than a week away. Now I'm, I'm not saying this just to be absolutely clear because either our Matt, Matt or I are currently discouraged Actually, I think we're both quite excited about where God has us as a church and anticipating what he has ahead for us in the coming months and years. I think, honestly, more encouraged than we have been in years. That's not why I bring this to your attention. I bring it to your attention because I know you care for us and that you care for our family. That we are the recipients of your kind and gracious prayers and support. No under shepherd should ever be placed upon a pedestal. For we are only men and fellow sheep. But as such, we need your prayers. Pray that we would keep going to the source of living waters for our own souls. That we don't seek alternatives for ourselves or the flock. That we would watch our lives and doctrine closely. That we would see ourselves as students before we are teachers. And as those that are in need constantly of the goodness and mercy and rest found in the presence of the Good Shepherd all the days of our lives. Second response, enticing voices are all around us, both within the church and the broader culture. So be on guard. Be discerning. Life and doctrine both matter. Look at both in those you follow and in your own practice. Peter calls these individuals blots and blemishes like the blemishes Leviticus describes on an animal not fit for service or sacrifice and on a man not fit for priestly service. Give attention to your own heart and attitude. If you are bent towards willfulness and determining your own way, humble yourself. Repent. Repent. Remember that Jesus alone makes us spotless and blameless. We all come in need of being cleansed in His blood. And He is fully able to wash away every stain. Third, Peter says they entice unsteady souls, pray and care for those who are vulnerable. The particular need we have to disciple new believers and the young among us as mentioned at the beginning our desire for going through the question and answer each week is to strengthen foundations for all of us in a broad range of areas many will seem simple but each is important each help us to know him better and who we should be better I also want to say I'm thrilled that our youth could go on a retreat this weekend, particularly to be challenged as youth to live for Jesus. Thank you to all those who served, and thanks to all those who invested to help make that possible for them. And I'm excited that we announced this morning that our Grace Kids Green Class will go to every week beginning in February. February. A huge thank you to all of our Grace Kids volunteers for how you serve week after week those in such formative ages. And I know from experience, I've seen and I've heard tell of how you come around those who are new in the faith and care groups and one-on-one, how you meet with them and help them understand more of what this relationship with Jesus is to look like. May we continue to grow in praying and caring for those most vulnerable. And finally, use your voice and your life to speak and display the truth of the gospel wherever you can. Even when it means you're regarded as a donkey. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you have sent us warnings, but thank you even more that you have sent us the truth, that we can know you rightly, to know how much we are loved by you, treasured by you, all that you have done for us. Oh, would you help us stick close to these realities? to celebrate them and share them with those around us. For their good. For our good. And for your glory we pray these things. Amen. Well thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank those who have served us in Grace Kids. We'd love to see you in care groups this week and one quick note well two. the welcome team is meeting at the other end of the building once the kids clear out of that classroom. Uh, so if you are interested in becoming part of the welcome team, the ushers or greeters, please head there uh, so you can learn more about that, what that looks like. And also progressive dinner is next Sunday. My plan is to send out to those hosts uh, who is coming to their house later today. So if you have not signed up, please do that today so that you can be included in that. Thanks so much. We'll see you in care groups this week. You are dismissed.